0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me for this episode is paranormal psychologist and writer, Evelyn Hollow. Evelyn is a former psychology lecturer and holds a Master of Research degree in paranormal psychology. She was a resident author at Esoterica Zine for more than four years, the occult columnist for the Corvid Culture website, and gives guest talks on paranormal history and the quantum physics of anomalous phenomena. She now consults as an expert for a variety of TV shows and podcasts, most recently the smash hit BBC shows The Fantasy Poltergeist and Uncanny. She is also one quarter of the team on the new TV show Spooked Scotland, which began airing on the Discovery Channel in May 2022. I start the interview with Evelyn by asking about how her career investigating the paranormal began, and her approach to this from a psychological and scientific perspective. We also discuss the role and importance of consciousness in understanding the nature of happenings such as hauntings and poltergeists. As you might expect, the Battersea Poltergeist made its way into the conversation as well as some of the theories about what might be the cause of cases such as that and other types of paranormal activity. It was a very interesting chat. Enjoy! Evelyn, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You've had a varied career investigating and researching the paranormal. How did that all get started for you?
1: Um, so originally I was doing a bachelor's uh, of science and psychology and I was specializing more in forensic psychology um I worked as a uh, experimental forensic psychology research assistant which is a very long title um for a bit for a couple of years and um and then when I got to my fourth year of my undergrad I uh, found out that one of my lecturers had a PhD in parapsychology and I was like what the hell is parapsychology?" Um, and then as soon as I read into it, I was like, oh, I, I didn't know that was a thing. And I, <laughs> I just found it absolutely fascinating. And at the time, I was sort of sub-specializing in interactions between um, human consciousness and quantum physics. And to me, the kind of investigative uh, science into the paranormal felt like the missing link. So I swapped to specializing in that. And then I did a master's at it, um, supervised by the same professor, and then yeah, just kind of from there I um became a lecturer at Queen Margaret University for a bit, mostly teaching um stats and research methodology and things like that. And then I did guest lectures um on uh, parapsychology. Um and then um and then Danny Robbins was um putting together the Bassi Poltergeist, and he just sort of emailed me out of the blue and um asked if I wanted to work on the case and uh, I mean, it just—it's a phenomenal case. It is, it is literally the holy grail of uh poltergeist cases. So, uh, yeah, then just all uh, it's it's never stopped working since. <laughs> it's been busy.
0: Brilliant. So, at that point when you moved to studying parapsychology, what was that like? What what sort of things were were taught? I'm I'm interested to to know more about that.
1: So for me i um i specialized in uh looking at kind of priming effects uh, god what did i do my undergrad dissertation on uh do, 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 do. um i think my supervising professor had an interest in like vitality which is when people endorse this belief that things have uh, a kind of you know vitalism this kind of uh vital consciousness they attach conscious properties to non-conscious things and he was sort of interested in that so I looked at priming effects and things that affect um, endorsing paranormal beliefs so I looked at um you know social background uh, I looked at even if the wording of certain things or the context of certain situations could influence a person to endorse the paranormal and just kind of looking at you know what's happening in the brain when somebody endorses a paranormal belief and uh, can that, you know, can certain things manipulate that or are certain people more likely to believe in the paranormal than others? Um, and but I mean, it's quite a varied field. Um, Edinburgh University has the Costler Parapsychology Unit, which is one of uh, very few parapsychology units in the entire world. Um, in fact, in the UK, I think there's only a handful of us that are parapsychologists, um, obviously myself. Um Kieran, who I worked with on Bat Polton, some uncanny stuff. Uh Caroline, I want to say Caroline Watt, who I think is the head of KPU at Edinburgh. But other than that, I actually can't name any other parapsychologists in the UK off the top of my head. Um, so it's quite a niche area, but they've everybody's got a different kind of research interest. Um, it just depends really. Some people are kind of looking at the neuroscience, like what is biologically happening in the brain when you endorse paranormal belief. Um, KPU do a lot of research into things like precognition um, and also like telepathy, ESP, things like that. Um, And I was sort of kind of more looking at the actual kind of social psychological aspect of the paranormal, like the kind of, you know, where does the paranormal fit into human culture and how does our environment kind of shape our brain and our paranormal belief. That was more my area at the time. And, uh,
0: yeah. Cool. So when you were, when you were studying parapsychology and when you started doing that, what was your sort of attitude to paranormal phenomena? What, what was your opinion on it?
1: Um, I kind of mixed beliefs cause I came from a background of, uh, you know having grown up kind of with the the paranormal and it wasn't ever really treated as being re- really really fringe or abnormal it was just these are things that happen and so to me it was just okay th- if these are things that happen then what is the science of them so I was f- quite fairly open um to things um and I think also personally as a as a as a pagan um I already had you know kind of my own personal beliefs in certain things um so it was it was an interesting task you know of, of separating what you personally believe in what you're what you're doing as a scientist in the same way that you know there are physicists who might be christian or might be buddhist or hindu or islamic or things like that and you know how do you kind of how do you kind of make sense of having personal beliefs and also being a scientist at the same time um but i was yeah i was fairly open i've always had a keen interest in the paranormal um grew up with a with a, in a family where things happened and um, my mum talked quite extensively and quite openly about you know paranormal things and, uh, and occurrences and I also just grew up with a, like a lot of like horror media and things like that as well and I, and I still do I, I very rarely watch anything that's not horror to be honest <laughs> Um, so I've always kind of you know been interested in the kind of the The boundaries um of what we think we know is real what what we think can and can't happen so uh yeah i already had a had a fairly keen interest in it um and i uh i think for me i was i always was interested in being a forensic psychologist and it's a very busy field you'll never be short of work um and I was good at it, and i was on on completely on track to to probably go into like a fairly well paid job and a yeah, pretty good forensic psychologist but um I knew that I would lie awake in bed every single night and be like but what if I had followed parapsychology instead and so I kind of had that moment of I knew I would regret it if I didn't if I didn't change my speciality um despite the fact that one of one of the other lecturers said to me that it was career suicide right. <laughs> um, because it's such a niche to, like forensic psychology is so busy and um and, and lucrative and you're never short of work and and things like that and you know to them they were like you're going to be a parapsychologist you're going to wreck your career and I have never stopped being busy I am the busiest I have ever been um so it kind of kind of went the other way for for me
0: No that that's that's brilliant um something else I'm interested in is what is your experience of academia in general's attitude to parapsychology and the paranormal been both as being a student and a, a lecturer
1: Hmm it is difficult because you know parapsychology is sort of frowned upon by other not by some uh, not by all but by some you know psychologists they just think that we're kind of fanning about doing stupid stuff like it's it's like Ghostbusters you know in the opening scene where they're in the lab doing the the shot <laughs> therapy thing you know reading the cards everyone thinks that I'm Venkman um, and brilliant so that is that that does happen um, where people kind of frown upon it um, I don't think they realize that there's actually lots of really unique and interesting work being done that has a lot of uh, applications to other things like answering big huge the biggest question the biggest unsolved problem in psychology is what is consciousness it's solving Chalmers's hard problem of consciousness and a lot of work in parapsychology actually kind of works towards that and um, but I think yeah, people think that we're just sort of. I think there's also a kind of interference because of media as well. Do you know, there's a lot of, um, like on YouTube, there's a lot of you know ghost hunters and things like that. Mm. And so people think that parapsychology is is ghost hunting, and it <laughs> and it's not. <laughs> um, sometimes the you know the two do overlap, where you're if you're working in the field, if you're going to these locations and try to test things or um, be asked to consult on things like I have done um but uh yeah it's definitely not that and there is you know I, I think from the public there's generally there's a huge interest in it it's a very niche area and it's very hard to get into because you can only get into it if you can get another parapsychologist to supervise you because somebody has to be able to mark your work obviously um and that is very very difficult because there's so few of us so it's a very niche area with a lot of interest but from within academia yeah there's kind of a mixed thing um, and certainly from other scientists as well because I can't remember who, who it was that said um, all science is physics and the rest is stamp collecting um, right. there's definitely this attitude that if you're not doing you know, you know basically if you're not doing physics then you're not doing anything important um, and the social sciences sometimes get a bad rep because of the way the information trickles down and becomes like kind of pop psychology and it gets misinformation and weaponized and you know, just general nonsense, so um I think the social sciences in general get a bit of a bit of a rep from other uh scientists, and then the paracycle just definitely on top of that um so it's a bit of an uphill struggle i think
0: oh absolutely yeah i I do sympathize um I was going to talk about that uh, materialist science especially seems. It's hard not to see it as the enemy of the study of the paranormal and research into that. And when you were talking about how you are using science as part of your career, how do you, you, you use science in, in your work? And what do you think science can achieve in terms of understanding the paranormal and perhaps you know, giving it some more respect?
1: I think we have to, you know, we have to investigate anomalous phenomena and you know that is the point if we have these things happening that seem to violate the rules of certain sciences or 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 of certain you know laws and physics then I think that's an incredibly interesting thing to be looking at you know why does it violate that because to me you know the parapsychology should be creating paradigm shifts um and what we think we know and what we don't know and to me certainly over the years what I've kind of worked on the most is two things and it's first of all it's categorizing phenomena because you can't analyze or or test things unless you know what you're testing that's like rule number one of science is make sure you are measuring what you're supposed to be measuring so if we can't all agree on what we're experiencing or, or what type of phenomena has taken place then it's difficult for us to assess and analyze so I'm working to and I have been working to categorize Phenomena to build scales to build um you know kind of guides and I've i been working on a on a manuscript for what feels like a lifetime um you know a kind of ontology handbook of um what's his working name at the moment um of categorizing phenomena and the second thing is that for me it's trying to understand that if to me consciousness I believe that consciousness is particulate in nature or you know we we could say molecular but I think even even smaller than that um in nature and as such is not governed by classical physics it's governed by quantum physics and it's governed by quantum physics suddenly lots of things that to other people might look like you know magic or impossible suddenly become very possible and I think that is what you know the paranormal phenomena is I think it is you know as Einstein once called entanglement spooky action at a distance these hmm. things that look impossible and they look like magic but it's not it's just quantum physics being w- as weird as it always has been um and i think that is that to me that is our gateway into understanding uh quite a sizable chunk of paranormal phenomena especially say things like you know ghosts or poltergeists or things like that things that interact with the, the environment and us um and uh so i've kind of just been working on working on that and kind of trying to join the, the dots together and I mean I, I started working on that when I was like 21 or something I was I was very young and I'm, I'm still working on it now um and we are making incredible advances um you know there's there's research labs that can now um not only have we proven that entanglement is real but we've also we're now at the point of being able to do it with very nearly uh things that are visible to the human eye it's just absolutely incredible and I think as that keeps going, as we keep understanding more and more and more, um, right down into the smallest parts of quantum physics, or quarks and neutrinos and the rest of it, understand how they violate these, you know, these rules that we thought were in place. Um, we're going to be able to understand a lot more of, um, you know, seemingly anomalous or paranormal phenomena.
0: Mm, so, um, the the standard model for physics, as I, I guess I understand it, which might not be very well, but um, is that matter is primary and mind is secondary the work that you're doing so is that sort of flipping that and saying that mind is primary and matter is secondary
1: yes kind of yeah so, so the the easiest way for me to explain this would be that in the um in obviously one of the one of the most well-known experiments in in physics was um you know looking at superposition so you have a you know um a Geiger counter that will go off whenever um, it detects. um, I think they used photons for it um, in a box. Now, up until the Geiger counter goes off, basically um, the photon can be in in either boxes um, and you don't know which one until it goes off, at which point all possibilities collapse to a singularity. It is in box A or it is in box B. Um, And the VNW treatment of the Copenhagen interpretation states that actually it's not cuz the geiger counter is not you know it is it is also a a photo is, is you know is governed by um certain laws of physics and a geiger counter is is a macro system and so it is um going to go off when it detects it but the thing is that the Geiger counter just goes off, but if no one is around to hear it, no conscious person, no no person is around to hear it, um, then it it doesn't. You know, the the, the kind of argument is that well, does it collapse to a singularity when the Geiger counter goes off, or does it collapse to singularity once a conscious observer hears the Geiger counter going off? At which point we can then consciously say, okay, it is in that box. So to me, if you try to separate. Um, you know scientists if you try to separate consciousness from physics it doesn't work Um, you know we are part of the system we are required in order for that system um, to occur and so it's strange for us to kind of pretend that we're not part of the system we don't have this inherent bias and therefore I think that you know consciousness has to be has to be considered Um, and then we start asking ourselves well what is you know what is consciousness and then that's when we start getting into um there's you know there's there's lots of different theories about what it is and and how it's stored and what form it takes and how it operates and um we've been at it for pff, an untold amount of years trying to work it out um and um but to me I think the systems are, are interlinked um and I think that once we understand that the two are interacting with each other Um, simultaneously and are simultaneously being kind of rewritten um, and modified by each other um, we'll have a better understanding of how things that seem you know like impossible or things that seem like magic are are not
0: right yeah when you uh, when you were studying parapsychology and I'm sure I'm sure when you were teaching it what was the first investigation that you did was that when you were at university studying parapsychology
1: Ah uh, yes yeah yeah so the first the first research work I did and it was when I was doing my uh, my undergrad um, it would have been for my my dissertation I think um we'd had modules previous to that in um the psychology of religion and things like that so you know the kind of psychology of paranormal belief um but it's it's more um but it was less about paranormal phenomena and just about actual you know belief basically um and so we'd already kind of had that but yeah the first the first actual research that I did was when I was doing doing my undergrad
0: and was that did that involve field work investigating places that were reputed to be haunted
1: uh no because I was testing um individuals basically on their endorsement of paranormal belief um so I was working um you know in a a laboratory um, and in research, research facilities, um, doing it with people rather than places. I wasn't looking at um, phenomena. I was looking at the what's happening in the brain, basically, when somebody believes in the paranormal, and how do, how is paranormal belief formed in the human uh, human psyche?
0: Right. Okay. And so, what did that inform you um, when it comes to to a haunted place? When someone says that uh, that they live in a haunted building or they've experienced ghostly phenomena somewhere as well going back to what we were just talking about with the how quantum physics can inform that how do you how do you apply your theories on that to what we might call a typical haunting case
1: I think the first thing that you know they always have to be aware of is uh kind of ruling out other things first so you're ruling out um environmental factors and then ruling out um Other people kind of interfering, um, other sort of confounding variables, and then you're looking at okay, well, the person themselves. So, um, you know, what is their their kind of psychological makeup? Um, How did they get from X phenomena happening to saying, oh, well, the house is haunted, you know, or it has it has a ghost in it, or it has a it has a poltergeist? Um, You know, how how did we get to there? Um, And then. It's kind of looking at the individual phenomena that is occurring, like are we talking about noises? are we talking about visual stimuli are we are we talking about interactions with other objects like you know things being thrown across a room by an unseen force um are we talking about communication with something that seems to be intelligent that we can't see um that sort of thing so as you're kind of going through all that um and then you know sort of categorizing and understanding it, you are constantly looking for other explanations first um, some something that has been noted is that uh I often read people on Twitter will often listen to um episodes of Uncanny and things, and be like "Oh Evelyn always thinks it's paranormal and i'm like I actually don't, but that I have been hired because when they hire me as somebody who they'll hire two experts per episode, they'll hire a sceptic and they'll hire somebody who would be more classed as a believer and so I fall in that category um, and it's a niche category for a parapsychologist to be in, so I am hired for that role so they ask the sceptic for the, the the non-paranormal explanations and they ask me for the paranormal explanations, whether I endorse them or not or whether I believe them, I'm just simply you know, giving my opinion on what it could potentially be and if so, how is that potentially possible? Um, so I think people get confused and just assume that I, every single time I'm seeing it, it's paranormal. They don't understand that that is literally my job. That is what I'm asked to do. Um, so, but when, I, when you're investigating these things, that's not what happens initially. You are immediately working top down as you always should in science because the point of science is not to prove things. The point of science is to disprove things. You're constantly mm-hmm. narrowing down things, ruling things out. So we do that um, and rule out, Environmental factors and other things like that, and then we have to look at the kind of actual psychology of the person or people involved um um and you're you know it has a lot of over these sort of things have a lot of overlap with forensic psychology you know with your kind of assessing memory and witness testimony and you know interview techniques and things like that uh, priming effects and whatnot and so there's a lot of overlap there when you're when you're trying to assess things, but um Field work isn't something that I did that often because I'm usually asked to retroactively consult on cases at like like or things that've happened in the past and then I'm asked to kinda of unpick them or give my opinion on them. Um I think I wasn't really actively having to go to lots of locations and and do, you know, be part of active invest live investigations until I was doing television work. Um, so working with with other people who have other specialities in the paranormal and I'm kind of there to just you know kind of consult as a psychologist but yeah it wasn't really until I was doing television work that I was um on live you know large live investigations that take you know several days basically
0: right yeah um to me the the classic impression of a haunting is always that the building the location is affecting the person I think in a lot of movies as well, that seems to be how it's depicted. But the 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 person, the experiencer, is also really important. Do you think that that more focus needs to be put on the experiencer as part of the haunting phenomenon?
1: Yeah, because I mean, you know, you've got to ask why. Is it just that it's happening to? You know, is the phenomenon happening in one specific location? Um, is it happening? within one specific artifact? Because to me, I always say that haunted houses are artifacts. Um, do you know, is it the actual land it's on? Is it the house? Is it a specific room? Um, and then is most of the phenomena, Does it, is it happening regardless of, of who's there? Um, is it happening when nobody's there? Uh, or is it happening to one specific person? And if it's happening more to one specific person, you know, you have to ask yourselves, why them? Like, what is what is the attraction, so what is the point of interaction with them. Um mm. and it's something that we see kind of less in hauntings and more in poltergeist cases that there's usually um a you know a particular person that it seems to focus on more than more than anyone else. Um and so they always become a, a point of real interest from a psychological perspective. Um but it also makes it difficult sometimes to assess the phenomena because um they're so they're so tangled up in it you're kind of always looking at it framed from their lens Um, and I think it's also easy to just assume that if lots of phenomena is happening to one person then actually it must be the person creating it you know themselves um and uh rather than an external force um and it's it's quite difficult to unpick sometimes but yeah you're always asking yourself why this person
0: Mm. I mean like you were just saying there poltergeist cases especially there just seems to be this perfect mix of of everything that creates this these things that happen there's a lonely or creepy location often the poltergeist phenomenon centers around someone who is stressed out or going through some sort of psychological trauma or, or just a, you know, a difficult time. And do you, what do you think about poltergeist cases? Is, is, is that an accurate viewpoint?
1: I think, um, so the poltergeist cases, poltergeist cases are actually incredibly rare. Um, they are depicted a lot in, um, you know, film and television and books and things like that, because they're incredibly dramatic, um, and very, very intense. So I think people think they're more common than they are. They're actually super rare. I think they are arguably a full-blown poltergeist is arguably the rarest type of paranormal phenomena. And so there's not a lot of cases to work on, which is why cases like you know Bassy poltergeist are just so so insane. Um, you know, a case that spanned ten years. It is, to the best of my knowledge, the longest running poltergeist case ever. Um and there's so much to work with and when you're looking at these cases there is somebody being focused on the kind of two theories are well this thing is sort of latched on to a person for whatever for whatever reason is it a case that they were more susceptible for whatever reason whether that's um you know physically or or mentally um is it there's this kind of theory that it's feeding off of this person, like this person's, whatever is happening to them, they're kind of like the battery and they're powering it. There's another theory, it's quite old though, uh, called RSPK, which is Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis. And this states, it was William G. Roll that came up with this, and this states basically that a person doesn't know they're doing it, but they're actually creating the poltergeist. Like, they're, they're somehow through psychokinesis is you know the ability to, to move objects or whatever with your mind that they don't know they're doing it but when they're really stressed out or they're freaking out or they're going through trauma their body is actually somehow projecting this sort of zero point energy and it's causing havoc in the house and they don't know that they're doing it but they're actually the cause of the poltergeist um, so there's a couple of different theories but yeah it's either that a poltergeist is feeding off of the person or that the person is creating the poltergeist themselves
0: Hmm. Yeah. I remember listening to the the Battersea Podcast series, which was excellent. And there's a part in that case where they decide to get the girl an exorcism and just I was just listening to that game. That's the, the worst thing you can do. I was like, Don't do that. You're just gonna make things much worse. And whether that's psychological or whether that's doing something, you know, sort of some sort of spiritual effect on what's happening either way i was just like don't do that (laughs) because you're almost you're almost (laughs) giving the the energy whatever it is like a an identity and a and a malevolent one as well Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i think especially also exorcisms are extremely extremely dangerous and largely deeply unethical Um, Mm. They have a horrific history of being weaponized by the church where they're basically just torturing, um, you know, LGBT people or um, anyone that didn't have the same sort of beliefs that they had or things like that, or or, or especially mentally ill people as well, and saying, oh, they're possessed by a demon. Um, This is a huge issue. Historically, people have died. Um, quite a few cases and and it still goes on to this day Um, I, I, I literally just read about a case where a, a girl was killed during a, an exorcism not, I don't know, not even nine months ago I think Um, and so he's, these things are extremely dangerous and in the Battersea Poltergeist case you know you had I can't even remember the guy's name, I think he worked with Shirley's dad if I mind right, and he, he fancied himself a a medium or a psychic or something, and then suddenly decided he was going to do an exorcism, <laughs> uh, like just absolutely bonkers. The you know being a say a, a psychic or a medium or, or you know being sensitive to things or whatever, and then suddenly being like this qualifies me to perform an exorcism is absolutely ludicrous. Um, but yeah, and especially because Shirley is so young, so young. And it must have been incredibly traumatizing, and then they had so many people there as well, and there were so many people there in fact that the cops were called um because under the uh oh, i think it's is it the witchcraft act or the anti witchcraft act I think this was ninety it it was older and then it was reformed in the sixties i think or fifty nine um stated that basically you couldn't um you know you couldn't uh take money from people for services such as it basically outlawed people claiming to be uh you know mediums for money and things like that and sort of preying on people um without having proof I guess uh of some sort um and so that it also outlawed the like practicing of um like black magic and stuff as well how the hell did they class you know what was black magic um (laughs) you know um outlawing things like that and so um the the cops turned up because they thought that they were performing some sort of black magic ritual and 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 halted it there's all sorts of chaos but yeah it must have been incredibly traumatic for Shirley and uh these people are deeply unqualified to be doing it um and exorcisms as a whole are, are generally incredibly Uh, or certainly can be for the vast majority of the time are incredibly unethical and very dangerous and uh, should not be undertaken by random people who think they know what they're doing uh, because people do die
0: Mm, yeah so as someone who was brought on board with the with that podcast series to to champion the supernatural side of what might have been happening how did you go about that, and what did you find that might suggest that there was something classically supernatural happening
1: well in that in that case, I mean you know right right away um the sheer volume uh, of phenomena that we had to work with was incredible, and then from there um you've also got the different types of phenomena so poltergeist cases can start with a few different ways, but they usually start with smaller things like noises and in this case, it did kind of start with just you know, sort of tapping and scratchings and things in the wall. But then the noise level that it escalated to was absolutely ludicrous. Now, when we did Bastard Sea live, touring the podcast with a live stage show and kind of new information and talks and things like that, um, we played. Uh, banging just regular you know banging sort of thumping noises but we turned it up to 100 decibels which is the approximate decibels that these things were occurring at in the case and I mean good lord we were performing in you know 5,000 seater theatres and the whole place shook like it was an earthquake it is deafeningly loud um, and it's not possible for any human being in that, you know, in that family to be creating that noise from within that house, um, you know, without, without being noticed, I mean, you'd have to have a pneumatic drill um, to be able to replicate it. So, I mean, the noises were so loud that neighbours were out in the street, um, you know, because they thought that they were ripping up the floorboards, it was that loud. And the noises also moved around, they didn't just come from, you know, one place, like it's not something exploding or or a pipe or something it's um they moved around they would be in furniture they would be in the, then they would be in the ceiling then you know it, it seemed to come from all over in the house simultaneously um, but it never happened to any other property and things like that we ruled all this out mm. um and so that's the kind of first thing that jumped out to me that was super interesting because it just went on and on and uh, every single night and we just yeah i mean just the the level um that that occurred at and then it just got increasingly weird. Um, do you know, the before you even got to the kind of communication stage and things like that, you'd have all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's stuff that we never even got to cover in the podcast because there was literally so much phenomena. Um, do you know, there was do you know, there's there's other there was also other people who got in touch after the show had finished who knew Shirley or who grew up round about when that case was happening. And, you know, we had someone whose sister uh, worked with Shirley in the department store who remembers all the scissors flying through the air and stuff like that. Um, and so you had neighbours where Shirley was literally, like, basically levitating off the top of a foot and it took multiple large, grown, fully grown men to pull her back down onto it. Um, there was just all sorts of stuff in that case. Just the case that just kept on giving. Um, and we, you know... Even though I do believe that over the 10 years, there was definitely probably some human interaction or, say, human embellishment, because, I mean, it's 10 years, how could there not be? Um, You know, at some point, there's going to be things that happened that that weren't paranormal activity and they just kind of got lumped in because they were so used to experiencing all of this phenomena. And there'll also be times where, yeah, people probably interfered or embellished on it or added stuff to it um, because nobody was believing them or... um, you know just got sick of it um i do expect that but it doesn't take away the fact that the core kind of chunk of the phenomena is absolutely ludicrous and we looked at it from every single angle and just could not find an environmental explanation or a psychological one or anything there's so much phenomena in that case that is just with with so many witnesses as well i mean we're talking like sometimes like 10 20 witnesses from all different backgrounds which is important as well all different backgrounds all different um you know beliefs and things like that um who all experienced it from uh various parts of the phenomena were able to corroborate it um and there's just yeah there's just no way for me to you know then I'm left with well if I've ruled everything out and I'm left with the paranormal then I'm going to start looking at it from a a paranormal explanation because that's how science works um so yeah for me just just an incredible case to have to have worked on and I don't think we'll will ever truly know, but I definitely believe that not all of it, but the core of the phenomena is paranormal in nature.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember in that case as well. It early on, it one of the things that happened was that a large ornate key was left in Shirley's bedroom, and I, I found that really interesting. That's a what an object to begin that sort of thing with. Like you're literally being being given the key to something to. Some untapped power, perhaps.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a it is a strange one. You do sometimes get um. So the apporting and disapporting of objects is rarer, but it is a step in um in poltergeist cases where objects suddenly will appear out of seemingly thin air or disappear uh, back into seemingly thin air. Um, and uh, it is unusual to have a to have it in a case, but it's um it it did crop up in other other uh, poltergeist cases where you did have these these objects. Um and you know, it's then asking ourselves, well, where did this come from? Or what does it symbolize? Um and, you know, what is the significance of it to the case? Um but in this one, yeah, in particular, because it didn't it didn't occur later in the case. It happens happens right at the start. Um it's one of the first things that happens actually. Shirley finds the key on a pillow. Uh and we still to this day don't know what it's for. <laughs> Uh, you know lots and lots of people asked about and still to this day ask about the key Do you know did we ever did Shirley ever find out what it was for did we ever find out what it's for and um I don't believe we ever did um so it's, a, it's one that I think we'll just we'll just never know
0: yeah it just it just feels so symbolic I guess <laughs> like uh, it does yeah it's like Shirley's been given the key to some to something not a physical thing a, a non-physical thing but yeah who knows um Another poltergeist case was uh, the Enfield poltergeist, and I remember reading the book about that. That this house is haunted, and they did some analysis of some of the banging sounds that were re- reported. And the analysis was interesting because in, in a kind of regular bang, the the peak of the sound wave for that is at the beginning of the of the sound, of the wave, but in the Enfield poltergeist, it was in the middle. So it wasn't a normal bang like knocking on a, on wood or so, on, on a wall and just thinking back to what you were saying about the incredibly loud sounds uh, that were heard um, in that house it, that also seems to be part of it like, that the sounds aren't being made in a regular manner
1: no and there's you know there's this kind of there's this theory that um, sounds that occur in these cases are different uh, in the way that they're formed in terms of the actual sound waves um oh, I wish I could remember the name of the guy's work off the top of my head um There's a scientist who looked at this who when they looked at you know recordings of these things in these cases um found that sometimes the noises uh were actually composed uh in a way um that didn't that felt um not man made um mm-hmm. It's really really interesting work um go on, I wish I could remember his name and um so yeah these you know it, it doesn't feel like always like regular regular noises and there's different types of noises as well because in this you know, these cases sometimes you had kind of tapping and things which or knocks which was more like communication and sometimes you had these full-blown show you know, house shattering uh rumbling um and there's a real kind of variety of uh of audio phenomena in these cases um and uh sometimes it's communication sometimes it feels more like threat um and then you kind of have to ask yourself you know how are these noises being created because if you have something non-corporeal say um you know how how is it creating this noise like what is being banged together to create the noise because it's not like you know my hand doing that is my hand touching the the table the noise Mm. is an emergent property it is something that emerges from um, you know the, the bone touching the table. Yeah. But if you have a non-corporeal body, how? What is touching the other thing? Like where does the noise come from? Because if the noise is coming, say the noise is coming from the table, like that tap, but it's non-corporeal. What is touching the table to create that tap? And if we are hearing banging, say it's not or knocking, and it's not coming from the table, two things must be making impact in order to create. You know to create the noise. Um. So what is what is happening, or is it? is it more like you know thunder where it's actually the noise of you know kind of particles being forced apart or being um you know kind of electrical charge and then it's creating a noise that sort of thing um it's uh yeah it's hard to kind of work out what the the audiology of portuguese is
0: yeah in the in the portuguese the bangs almost like they popped out of the wall or the wood you know they mm-hmm. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a, like 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 you were just saying. It wasn't an external knock on the surface. It sort of in, the sound emerged from the surface, mm-hmm. which is it's very interesting. Um, a theory that I'm a fan of is the is the sort of the role of the building in poltergeist cases and in hauntings. And going back to our conversation about consciousness,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, do you think that in some way a, a building, especially an old building, can have some form of consciousness and that can be part of what is happening with hauntings
1: so with with haunted buildings one of the theories is that building um and this is sort of linking to stone tape theory i suppose is that Mm. the building is constantly kind of recording somehow the events within it and they're sort of being replayed so when you're experiencing a haunting you're experiencing either a passive replay of some sort of traumatic or intense event and then the ones that are more active um you know it feels like a, a an actual force a, a conscious individual of some sort um you know tormenting people in the house and that's when it gets into polter territory um but yeah there is this kind of idea that are these spaces like are these houses do they kind of take on a a life of the, their own um do you know the only the thing with that is that you know how can you know I was talking earlier about you know vitalism where we apply consciousness to non-conscious objects so that is us kind of endorsing that um because we'd be saying well the house is the house is alive essentially um but it's but it's yeah how do we define that because to me there's sort of two options in haunted house cases and it's a bit like chicken and egg so it's is it that the house is drawing in other things to it for whatever reason or is it the other way around where something uh traumatic or intense or something has occurred there um and that's what's you know creating this activity so is it the activity being produced by uh, by the house or by the area or is the house drawing other things into it um and I do think that a lot of people definitely feel like places have kind of personalities, I guess. Um, it is hard to separate because sometimes when, you know, when I go to places and not even uh, paranormal places, I mean, just anywhere in general, um, you know, you do feel a uh, character or personality based on the surroundings. Um, but if I make those surroundings uncomfortable or or dark or, uh, decrepit and things like that, am I more likely to be like, "Oh, this place is, you know, spooky or, or it's haunted. And when events occur in these spaces, we find ourselves saying things like the house does not want you here, or, you know, "The, the house is trying to chase a family away or things like that. Like the house has taken on a life of its own. Um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to look at how that would be, how that would be possible. Um and yeah it, it, it's something that definitely comes up in a lot of uh in a lot of cases you know we we ask ourselves how does a house become haunted um and, and to me it's it's as simple that um you know having previously specialized in, in cursed and enchanted objects houses are can absolutely be cursed objects because it is an object it's an artifact so once we kind of accept that we look at well you know it can be haunted because can can anything can everything be haunted if you try hard enough yeah. um, you know like why specifically a house, surely anything could potentially be haunted um so what are you know we really don't have a categorization for that, which is why I've been trying to work on categorizing things like this, like you know like haunted houses because so that we can maybe agree on um how these things become haunted, and then we can say, okay well is that you know is that possible you know is the does the house take on some sort of consciousness um itself rather than like there being a spirit in the house is it the house itself that is causing the phenomena
0: yeah i'm a fan of the idea of co-creation in paranormal phenomena which doesn't mean that neither thing exists but it's sort of it's a it's almost like a perfect combination of people in the building and Mm. this phenomena happens and going back to vitalism i wonder if. Sometimes, in certain cases, people who are animate can somehow transfer some of their energy over time to inanimate things like a house. If a house is lived in long enough, it gains some sort of vitality. I I know what you're saying about vitalism, but I wonder if if that kind of concept fits, fits within the understanding of the paranormal.
1: Yeah, like energy transference, there is, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely people, some people believe that um, an energy transference that you can sort of somehow transfer, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's consciousness or whatever, however they define energy, like what sort of property it takes on. But there is definitely people, you know, who believe that that can be, um, that can be transferred. Um, So even in, in modern day terms, you know, where we say like a place has got like good vibes, basically. We're saying that it's you know it's 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 giving us whatever you know safety or enjoyment or a good time or or peace or happiness or whatever. And you know how how do we get that? And then other people you know might go into some of these buildings and be like, "This place gives me mad like you know really bad vibes." And you know how do we? And is that you know? Although it's us just saying how we feel in the environment, um, you know people do definitely believe in. Some people believe in energy transference. Like if you went to say like a a really old mental asylum where where likely patients were probably tortured and really horrific stuff happened, um, you know, is it possible that all of that trauma somehow transfers into the place itself, and that's how it becomes, um, you know, the building itself becomes tormented. It becomes a reflection of the the trauma that it's endured.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Recently, um, you were in a, a tv series called spook scotland so tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved with that show
1: um so they kind of they pitched me um the production company was turn um and uh it's made by uh discovery channel um so discovery in turn um pitched me this idea for a show set in Scotland. Um, Where we're going to lots of different locations, lots of really beautiful, big kind of dramatic locations, um, and just kind of looking at the history of them, and you know, and then the the Scottish history surrounding them, and then okay, well, why are these locations said to be paranormal? And they wanted to put together like a really diverse group of people, um, so Gail Porter was there just just to present it basically, just to kind of be the you know she had um no kind of skin in the game you know she was um there to just purely experience basically um as a, as a as a bystander and to present it and then you've got um chris fleming um who uh was hired to be uh you know say i say a medium essentially um and then you had ryan o'neill who was the tech guy so he runs haunted scotland which is um, you're a paranormal investigator so he had lots of equipment and technology and so he's there kind of recording things and going okay well how do we measure the phenomena and then I was hired as a parapsychologist on it to um, give to kind of curate and give context to okay well what are we experiencing what is the dev- definition of x what is the history behind it and if this is occurring how is this occurring or when things are happening what can we rule it out as um, so am I able to say okay well actually that could be that um and things like that um you know and I, I mean it's a it's a i had I had amazing time making it um the production crew i worked with were absolute class um i had an absolute ball um and it's uh it is challenging as a as a parapsychologist because you have to be aware that you're making television so you it still has to be entertaining and you know nobody wants to hear you give a 10 minute really dry academic explanation about something so you have to be aware <laughs> that it's you know it's television and. And things like that but we did have you know some really unusual experiences and, and none of it is fake that's the thing when when I think when a lot of people watch these paranormal shows they just assume you know some of at least some of it's faked or people are at it like nobody was at it because I outright said that to them when they pitched me up. like on day one I was like I'm not getting involved in this if it's going to be tat and also if it's going to be where people are going to like mess around and do stuff and I was like do you understand that you'll, you'll destroy my career um like and just as a scientist I was like and I'm just not participating and they were like no no absolutely not they were like we might go to locations and get nothing and if we get nothing then that's fine like um we had a very small crew with us as well so at any given time even though you might not see it in the shot every single person is accounted for in that room um you know and in these locations we were completely by ourselves and you know and things like that and and there really genuinely wasn't um you know any faked phenomena or Or people screwing around or anything like everybody everybody took it fairly you know quite really quite seriously um scared the hell out of poor gail um and um yeah and i mean some of you know just some of the stuff that happened is just really just really weird maybe and certainly could be explained and and some of it you know, it might have been more that we were kind of caught up in the moment of so much happening. And maybe when I when I get to watch it, when it when it airs and I'll maybe look back and be like, oh, actually, that could be explained by X or, oh, well, I don't I don't feel like I'm hearing that now or whatever. You know, things like that. That might be the case. But um, there certainly was at least at least a good few times where stuff happened that was just truly, truly bizarre. Um, But yeah, it was an it was an incredible experience. And it is weird to to do it as a parapsychologist. You know, you're trying to be on camera and entertaining and also like valuable and things at the same time. And it is, it is hard, but it was, no, I had, I had a great time making it. Um, and I can't wait to do more television.
0: Cool. So can, can you talk about some of the weird stuff that happened?
1: I don't know if I'm allowed to yet. Um, <laughs> but just, I, I mean, I could probably give you vague examples, but, um, you know, we had a lot of really, really strange uh, audio phenomena that was repeated multiple times as well. Um, which is always important in science. And, um, we had uh um do what else we got um there's a lot of yeah just really bizarre um stuff happening on equipment uh equipment going off that shouldn't go off and we were kind of you know ruling it out in every single way possible and yet it was it was still doing it and it wasn't just going off a little bit some stuff was going bananas and um, you know like Ryan was like uh, you know Ryan's been doing this a long time and and you know even Ryan was like I've never seen that bit of equipment behave like that ever. Uh, and we're doing it with multiple things and testing it again and again making sure it's not the equipment and yeah just really really bizarre stuff um and we uh yeah uh some of the stuff you know we heard or or happened was really strange um it'll be interesting to see what makes the final edit on every episode because some places we went to and there was like a reasonable amount of phenomena and some places we went to and it was like bananas like right out the gate like we'd barely even get through setting like the war room up we barely even get through like our kind of chat plan on on screen chat about what we we're going to do and stuff would kick off um and it was just yeah a bit weird but yeah it'll be interesting to see what makes the what makes the uh what makes the final edit i think the first episode is actually going to be the last episode that we filmed so the last one we shot was on aaron it was a Picardon castle, I think, off Top Head, and um, which was just incredible, just the most beautiful location to have filmed in. Uh, really, really strange episode. Um, and I think that's actually going to be the first one that comes out.
0: Cool. That sounds fascinating. I mean, when things like that happen, when you turn up somewhere and very quickly the equipment starts doing things like that, I mean, what do you think is happening there? Is it just is it going back to what we were talking about? Is it is it that the people being in the building? Uh, I'm something I'm intrigued by too. Is if there are sort of non-human or non-physical entities in this place, or have or for some reason are drawn to this place? How do they perceive us? I mean, did they experience time? I have I have loads of questions about what it must be like for being a ghost. I really hope that ghosts don't experience time. That must be absolute torture. <laughs>
1: There's a a film called um, American Ghost Story, it's got Casey Affleck in it, that is basically about that, where he dies and becomes a bedsheet ghost, and he's just kind of left there as as other... You know, no one can see him, I don't think. And other, you know, people move in and out of the house, and kind of time goes on and on and on. He's just kind of stuck. Um, It's really good. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to these questions. It's kind of like, Nagel wrote a paper... I think seventy four or eighty four, um, called the way in which it is like to be a bat, and that was right when we were sort of you know looking at okay, well, what is consciousness like? How do we how do we how do we even know what the other person is? You know, everything is like a shared hallucination that we've just all agreed on, basically. So, um, and that's kind of the thing that we're asking here, like what the way in which it is like to be a ghost? You know, we'll never really know, like what's it like to have non corporeal form or be able to swap between corporeal non corporeal form um you know yeah what must they think of us uh, if that is the case and you know and ghosts exist and are they able to you know perceive us do they know that they're a ghost um do they do they recognize us as as human you know as things that they once were or do they see us as something else um you know it's a it's a kind of weird set of uh questions that will definitely mess with your head if you start trying to imagining you know what it's like to be a poltergeist it's a bit bizarre
0: maybe that could be the next tv show you do i'd like to see that <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool well evelyn this has been a really fun conversation thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast
1: no worries you're welcome thank you for having me
0: if people want to find out more about you and your work um, how best do they do that
1: uh, so I have a website, um, www.evelynhollow.com, which has got all my kind of contact and previous work on it, you know, links to lots of things and interviews and whatnot and shows I've been on. Um, I'm also on Twitter as well, um, underscore and then Evelyn Hollow and on Instagram as well, Evelyn Hollow. Um, and yeah, and you know, uh, I'm I'm fairly active on probably both Twitter and Instagram, but uh, yeah, my website's got all my previous stuff on it as well if they wanted to look through Shows I've been on or podcasts I've done, uh, writing work, things like that. It's all, on, it's all on the website.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Sure. Brilliant. Thank you, Evelyn.
1: No worries. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Evelyn. It was interesting to find out that although her background in studying paranormal phenomena is a firmly scientific one, In the Battersea Poltergeist and Uncanny podcast, she was recruited to be what would be classed as a believer, which can traditionally be seen as the less rational viewpoint. It highlights the limits of using terms such as sceptic and believer when debating the reality of the supernatural. The psychology of paranormal belief is something that can definitely provide insights into the nature of the unusual experiences people report, though. And hopefully, as more research is made in this area the level of acceptance that these subjects have within mainstream science improves, and more people are encouraged to involve experiences in studies connected with areas such as consciousness and quantum physics. Definitely check out the Battersea Poltergeist and Uncanny podcasts if you enjoyed our conversation, as well as the Spook Scotland TV series, if you can. In episode 67 of Some Other Sphere, I interviewed Hayley Stevens, who was also involved in the BBC podcasts, so you should give that a listen too if you haven't done so yet. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen, and sharing it on social media, as it really helps some of the Sphere to grow and find new listeners. If that's not really your thing, tell a friend who you think might enjoy the podcast, as it all helps. You can follow some of the Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi, Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.